Uh, Join me this morning, if you would, in your Bibles in uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. I've always found it, uh, the story of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace just to be a, a real um, encouraging uh, story and a challenging story as well. As, as Ron mentioned, we were talking about it recently and um, just the idea of being in a fiery furnace. We all, we've all been there and we've all been through difficulties and trials, some of us more than others. Uh, scriptures talk about them heating the oven up seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before. And so that's a pretty difficult trial, right? You're not talking about your minor trials, but you're talking about your major trials. And, uh, and then for them to come out of that fiery furnace, and the only thing to be burned off was their, was their bondage. And I just think of how trials are meant to free us from our bondage, um, free us from the world, really, and the things that keep us held down here. And then to not smell of smoke at all. In other words, to not smell like you've been through a trial. And uh, I think of what the Lord talks about in, in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount where he talks about when you're fasting, don't look like you're fasting. And uh, just to not have trials affect us in such a way that they, that they bring us down, that they beat us down because we do have a, we do have a, we do have a great Savior, don't we? And uh, he is bigger than those situations and circumstances. His providence is right there with us through the whole process. And uh, he's either orchestrating it or allowing it in our lives to set us free. And I I think the goal, the Lord's ultimate goal, I've been kind of wrestling with this myself. The Lord's ultimate goal is when we're able to go through a trial and not smell like we have. And, And we come out and it's like we haven't been through a trial because that's how close we are walking to him. So um, that's all preview for this morning. Uh, Hebrews 7, if you want to just hold your hand here and then turn back, hold, uh, put a finger here and turn back to Genesis uh, chapter 14. We're going to be introduced this morning to a man. Um, we read about him. It was uh, the Psalm 110 makes reference to this man. His name is Melchizedek. There's not a lot of references to him in the Bible. Hebrews 7 is the most significant reference where really the whole chapter deals with this man named Melchizedek. And then uh, Psalm 110 makes a reference to him. Genesis 14, where you'll be at as well. And then um, also there's a few references in Hebrews 5 and 6 about this man named Melchizedek. And so uh, we're going to go there, as an introduction, we're going to kind of unfold a little bit about this man Melchizedek and who he is. If you notice, in, before we read this, if you notice in your bulletin, the title of this morning's message is Jesus, a Better Bridge Builder. And, and the reason the message is titled that this morning is because Hebrews 7 compares the priesthood of Christ to the priesthood of the, of the Levites, or the priesthood of Aaron and, and his sons. And there's a comparison there. And then the meaning of priest, uh, the Latin word is pontifex, and the meaning means to be a, a bridge builder. It means to be a, a bridge maker, to be exact in regards to translating the word. So it's a bridge builder, a, brig, a bridge maker. So in essence, what a priest does is that he, he uh, builds a bridge. And we know that in the Old Testament that uh, the priest would 
make a way for people to communicate with God, to have a fellowship with God, to have harmony with God, and not to be his enemies or not to be in opposition with him. He, a bridge is ultimately there to help a person reach the other side. And from a relationship point of view, a bridge is there to restore relationships or to make restoration possible. A bridge doesn't always restore relationships, but it makes restoration of a relationship possible. Okay, there's some other terms in the scriptures that are used to describe a bridge maker. Matthew describes it as a peacemaker, and then 2 Corinthians 5 describes it as a minister of reconciliation, or somebody who brings restoration or reconciliation. The best passage of scripture that if you want to read on this idea of having a bridge built so that we can uh, access God would be Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 19, which describes the work of Christ tearing down that one thing that separated us from God. And we know the one thing that separates us from God is sin. Uh, Sin is the thing that keeps people, Isaiah tells us that your sin has separated between you and your God. So sin separates from God, so there must be something done with our sin in order for there to be a restoration of our relationship and our walk with God. Why is this bridge important? It's important because sinful men, sinful man needs a way to communicate with God because sinful men need God. There is no hope for mankind without God without a relationship with God, without a walk with God, without harmony with God. If a person is not in harmony with God, the scriptures tell us that that person is the enemy of God. Um, there is no middle of the road. It's like, I'm a friend of God, but, but I'm not in a relationship with him. There is either you're in a relationship with God or you're his enemy. There is no middle of the road. There is no middle way. So this is necessary for this bridge to be built, for this mediation, if you will, for this intercession, for this priesthood is important because it reestablishes our ability to fellowship with God. Not only is this important because it reestablishes our ability to communicate with God, but it is also important because God desires to fellowship with us. If you think about the Garden of Eden, the Lord would walk in the garden daily in fellowship with Adam and Eve. It was a part of his reason for creating and for placing them on the earth that they could glorify him and that he could have fellowship with them. When sin entered into the situation of the scenario, that fellowship was broken. There was no longer fellowship with God. You see it right away in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sin. God comes back in the garden, right? And every day Adam and Eve have been walking with him and fellowshipping with him. But right away when God comes back into the garden, Adam and Eve are doing what? They are hiding, aren't they? They are hiding from God. So there's this, there's this transition of relationship. In one moment, Adam and Eve are in perfect communion with the Lord. In the next moment, they're completely fearful of him. They're afraid of him because of that sin had broken that relationship. So the reason why we need a priest, if you will, a bridge builder, is because of our relationship with God has been broken because of sin. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so no one is exempt from it. We're not, our relationship with God is not broken because of Adam's sin. Our relationship with God is broken because of our sin. 
Uh, he, uh, Romans 5 and verse 12, the Bible says, we're asked by one man sent into the, into the world and death because of sin, for all men have sinned. Uh, our relationship with God is broken because of our own personal sin. We are sinners or we are prone to sin because of Adam's sin. Uh, he was the one that passed down his sinful nature to us. So we have this priesthood established, and the purpose of the priesthood is to restore that harmony with God. It's to restore that, that communication, that um, um, friendship, if you will, with the Lord. And what's interesting is we often connect the priesthood to the law. We often connect the priesthood to Levi. We often connect the priesthood to Aaron. We often connect the priesthood to, um, to Moses. But there is a pre-priest. There is the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so if you go back to Genesis 14, I want to just read a short passage here that introduces Melchizedek to us. And then we'll go on and describe him in further detail. Okay, so Genesis 14, verse 17. The Bible says, after his return from the defeat of Cheddar Lomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, the king of Sodom and went out Sodom went out to meet at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, here's this guy, Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was the priest of the most high God. Now I want you to stop there for a moment. We we almost, we almost can see in this simple phrase that we have the first Lord's Supper. And the priest is bringing out bread and wine to Abraham to um, feed and give them something to drink. But we see a picture of that when he, when he describes, he doesn't say that he brought out bread and wine and then stopped there. But he goes on to say the reason why he brought out bread and wine is because he was the, because he was the priest. And that's what the priest did. And so again, we, we connect, we can see here perhaps a picture of, of pre-New um, pre Testament and, and even pre-deliverance from Egypt, we can see a picture of the Lord's Supper. Something pointing us to the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ being performed by somebody who is a priest prior to the law. So the priesthood doesn't go back to the law. The priesthood goes back far before the law. This is, Melchizedek is really the first mention of the priesthood. The Bible says in verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was the priest of the most high God. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Okay, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. And we, we're not going to read the, the rest here, but you also notice that tithe doesn't go back to, doesn't go back to the Old Testament law, but tithe, go, tithe goes back to the time of Melchizedek. Of the time far before the law. We want to connect tithing to the law, but tithing goes back way before the law, where Abraham here is giving a tenth of the spoil from his military victory. He's given a tenth of it to the Lord or to Melchizedek. 
And we see, again, a mention of this uh, lineage, if you will, in, in uh, Psalm 110, where it describes the fact that the lineage of, or the priesthood of Melchizedek would, would be an eternal priesthood. It would be a forever priesthood. Now back to Hebrews chapter number 7, where uh, we are reintroduced to this man, Melchizedek. And really, it starts at the very last verse of chapter number 6. It says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter number 7 is going to describe for us who this Melchizedek is. Let me give you three possibilities, okay? And we're going to then unfold uh, this chapter, and we're going to perhaps discover who Melchizedek is. But more than that, we're going to see the truth of the text. There are three possibilities for who Melchizedek was. Some believe that he was simply a man who was a king of Salem, and Salem was an ancient name for Jerusalem. If you read Psalm 76 and verse 2, you will see Salem and Jerusalem being being uh, synonymous. You, you're able to use them interchangeably in that verse of Scripture. So some believe that he was a human man who was a king of Salem, which was Jerusalem. Others believe he was a Christophany. A Christophany was an Old Testament presentation of Christ in a physical form. When he would present himself to, to mankind, he was, it was not his incarnation, but he would present himself to mankind in a physical way. And this is not a surprise because Christophanies are seen several times in the Old Testament where Jesus Christ would appear to someone and, um, and give them instruction. And you'll notice this if you read through the Old Testament. You'll notice this by whenever Joshua is a good example. When the angel of the Lord, the Bible calls him the angel of the Lord of the host of God, appears to Joshua, Joshua falls down to worship him. Now, what we know, based upon scriptures, if, if, if this was not the Lord himself, the, the angel would have rebuked the man for bowing down to him. So anytime that there is that allowance there, we know that this is not just any angelic being, but this is the Lord himself. And, and so we see Christophanies, we see Theophanies in the Old Testament, which is God revealing himself to man in visible ways, and we see angelophanies which would be an angel. Um, remember in the story of Lot, when two angels came to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, remember that? And they were physical men. They had physical bodies. They took upon physical forms. And we, we don't just see that in that story, but it's, it's throughout the Old Testament as well. Um, Genesis 6 deals with it, where angels were taking on human forms. It is possible. So Christophany would be where Christ himself came, revealed himself to Abraham, and then received tithes of Abraham. And then the last option is the, that this was an angel of, of heaven, a heavenly angel that was functioning as a priest and was coming down to meet with Abraham to, um, to receive tithes from him and to, to give him the, the bread and the wine. This is also not unusual. It's not unusual for an angelic being to be called a king, or to be called a priest, or not, not a priest, but to be called a king or a prince. Uh, you'll remember in Daniel chapter number 10, where the demonic forces are pursuing after or keeping the angel from coming to Daniel, and the demonic force is referred to as the prince of Persia. 
And so the prince refers to his, his, his um, ranking as a demonic force, and Persia refers to his um, location, where he was to be powerful in that location. So it's possible that king of Salem was just a reference to this angelic being having a very high position in Jerusalem as, a, as an angelic being or working with mankind in that region. Now let's read through our text and let's just look at some basic information to find out perhaps who this is and then, and then conclude with some thoughts on how this relates to Christ. What do we know and what should we note about Melchizedek? The Bible says in verse number one, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God. And let's stop right there. This is, there's only two times in the Bible where someone is called priest of the most high God. Um, Genesis 14, which we read already, and then this verse of scripture right here. So there's a very distinct, there's a, there's a distinction between this priesthood and the other priesthood. No other priest is referred to as priest of the Most High God except for Melchizedek. So we want to make note of that, and if you want to underline it in this text of Scripture, as well as in Genesis chapter number 14, it also refers to this. He met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness... And then he is also king of Salem. Now watch this. This is an important break here. He says he is king of Salem, which for some would mean king of Jerusalem, right? But he stops and he says, he almost is saying, let me explain that to you. He is king of peace. So he's describing, he's almost minimizing the idea of being king of Salem as a location and, and, and pointing to the fact that he is king of Salem as a description, so his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. His, his location or his region means king of peace. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness, and he is the king of peace. The Bible says in verse number three, he is without father or mother or genealogies, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. So we see that he doesn't have any genealogies. There's no record, at least, some would say, well, there's just no record of his genealogies, and that's what it's referring to. Uh, that's a possibility. But what we do know is, is there's no genealogies of this man. The, the, uh, seemingly, the scripture is saying he has no father, he has no mother, and he is just like the son of God. All right, so that's, that's what the scripture says. Again, there are people who would say, well, that means that he doesn't have any record of his father or his mother. That's a possibility. I'm not telling you it's not a possibility. I'm just trying to present to you what the text is saying. So then it goes on to say, see how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though, though these are, are descendants from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from, from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed, them whom he had, who, blessed him who had the promises. Now notice as well that he is not... So, so Levi is to receive 
tithes from the people of Israel, from the Jewish people. But it's clear that Melchizedek is not from the tribe of Levi and that he is not of this people, but yet they're still tithing to him. Okay? He's not of these people, but they're still tithing to him. He's making a, a, a reference to the significance, to the extreme significance of this man. He goes on, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Who's the inferior? It's Abraham. Who's the superior? It is Melchizedek. In the one case, tithes are received. And notice this too. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men. Okay, the tribe of Levi, right? In another case, he says, but in the other case, which is that of Melchizedek, by one of whom is testified that he lives. There's almost a reference here to, here is, there's a contrast being made to some pay tithes to mortal men and some pay tithes to Melchizedek. Verse number eight, one might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes pays tithes through Abraham for he is still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Go on, verse number 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under the people received for under it the people received the law what further need would there be for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron for where there is a change in the priesthood there is necessarily a change in the law as well i don't want to talk about that this morning but i want you to notice that when there's a change in the priesthood there's a change in the law okay there's there's a there's a transition and uh, we know we have the Melchizedekian priesthood, we have the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical priesthood, and then we have Christ priesthood. I, I think it's interesting to note that Abraham, God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12 that was a covenant of grace, right? And we live under that covenant today. That covenant was made with Abraham, and then you have the covenant of law in the middle, and then you have the covenant of grace restored, if you will, in the, in the new covenant, you also have the Melchizedekian priesthood established in Genesis 14, and then you have the Aaronic priesthood under the law, and then you have the restoring of the Melchizedekian priesthood under Christ. So you have this restoration, you have this middle world, if you will, of law and legalism, which was meant to uh, bring us back to that state where we uh, appreciated and understood what grace was all about. And let me say this to you, law is really, law is a great tutor to help us understand what grace is about. Law is a great tutor to help us appreciate grace. The more we see our fallenness, the more we see how unworthy we are, how undeserving we are of kindness, the more we see how much we deserve God's justice and his wrath, the more we embrace this thing of grace. And can I submit to you that the reason for the law and the Levitical priesthood that is crammed in the middle of this grace is that we would appreciate it for what it is. We would own it and embrace it instead of being uh, selfish about it and even somewhat greedy about the grace of God. Uh, we live in a culture today that doesn't request grace from God, but we live in a culture that demands grace from God. We live in a culture where God is... God is subservient to man's sovereignty and not in a, in a world where we are subservient to God's sovereignty. 
We don't come to God each day and say, God, what would you have me to do? We come to God each day and say, God, here's what I would have you to do. Is it true? Do I speak the truth? This is where we live. We have to reevaluate where we're at. He goes on to say in verse 13, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. Now he's speaking of Christ, from which no one has um, ever served at the altar. In other words, no one has ever been a priest that has come from the tribe of Judah. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses had nothing about, said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who was become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. In other words, Christ's priesthood was not based upon the, the Levite tribe. Christ's priesthood was based upon his resurrection. It was based upon the fact that he was not, the word indestructible here means he was not defeatable. Amen? His priesthood is built around the fact that he is victorious. He wins in the end, and we can win in him and through him. For it is witnessed of him, he says, you are the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which is a direct quote from Psalm 110. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, speaking about the law, for the law had made nothing perfect, But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. We're going to talk about the oath here in a moment more in detail, but the oath just means seal, something that is sealed. The priesthood of Christ is something that is sealed. It's final. It's complete. The priesthood of Aaron was not sealed. The priesthood of Levi was not sealed. It was, it was completely open-ended, wasn't it? Every year, things had to happen. Every day, things had to happen differently to, to satisfy the uh, Levitical priesthood. This is something that is sealed. It's something that is complete. Christ's priesthood is complete. It's finished. He says, this makes Jesus the guarantor, the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were, were many in number because they were prevented by the death, by death from continuing in office. But he holds this priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And I'm gonna, I want to stop there because this is, this is getting into my sermon. We're, we're going to break down this, these last few verses practically. In my opinion, I think the text, this passage of scripture teaches us that Melchizedek was either a Christophany, it was either Christ presenting himself to mankind in a physical form, or it was an, it was an angel. It was an angel that was presenting itself to mankind to be a priest. Um, I don't know of anybody else in the Bible that is called the Prince of Peace, that's called the King of Righteousness, other than Christ himself. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. He is the one. Many of the things that are mentioned here in this passage of Scripture could apply to no one except for Jesus Christ. Or or possibly an angelic being that was perfect in righteousness and perfect in peace as well. So my, my interpretation, my understanding of this is that 
This is either Christ himself presenting himself in human form, receiving tithes from mankind, presenting those as a mediator. Who's our mediator now? Okay, just think about this with me. Who's our mediator now? Christ. Under what covenant? The covenant of law or grace? Grace. Where did that begin? Who, who was given that promise? Moses or, or Abraham? Abraham before, right? So we have this restoration going on here, past and present and future. The priesthood, possible, likely, that it could be very similar. But you have a, a priest in the Old Testament that is Christ. Not in, the, his, in, not in his incarnate state, but Christ presenting himself to mankind, receiving tithes from mankind, receiving praise from mankind, receiving worship from mankind, and presenting it to God the Father. And then we have that restored in the New Testament, which is what we live under today. This is not the important piece of this puzzle, okay? So don't, if you're, if you're sitting there saying, I don't agree with that, that's fine, okay? That's not the important piece of this puzzle. The important piece of this puzzle is Christ. Is Christ. This is where we get into Christ. Christ is the one who fulfills the Melchizedekian priesthood. Whether it was Christ back then, it is Christ today. He is the priest forever. And he will reign forever. And he will, he will build bridges and, and connect people to God forever. So there are three things that I want to address in these last few verses. Three simple things, three thoughts that I believe will help you as we see Christ as the one who is building bridges for mankind to reach God the Father again. Sin, remember, sin has separated us between us and our God. Christ Jesus has come as a priest to restore our fellowship and our relationship with God. And there are three aspects to that that are super important. Number one is that his priesthood is perpetual. The Bible says here in this verse, the former priests were many in number because they were uh, prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. In other words, his priesthood, the term here literally means it's not fading away. His priesthood is not fading away. With, with priests in the Old Testament under the law, as their physical bodies faded away, their ability to perform the responsibilities of a priest was fading away. The priesthood of Christ is not fading away. It's not transferable, and it's not changeable. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting as I was reading and studying the, the Greek terms used here to describe this. It wasn't that it was not transferring or not changing. It was that it was not transferable and not changeable. In other words, the priesthood of Christ is fixed. It's fixed forever. It's not transferable to anybody else. There's no one that's going to come after him. It's not changeable and that it's going to ever be altered. It's built around the character of God. It's built around the character of Christ. And therefore, what he promises, he delivers. The Bible tells us in Titus that he is unable to lie. It's not fitting within his character for him to make a promise to us and not to fulfill that promise. So we see, first of all, that his, his priesthood is perpetual. Now, what does that mean to us? Watch what he says. He says, because of this, or uh, this version says, consequently, 
Other versions might say something different, but, but here's what he says. Because of this, he is able to save to the uttermost. Because of his eternal, because of his forever perpetual priesthood, he is able to save us to the uttermost. What he's meaning is like an artist that's painting a picture or like a sculptor that's sculpting something, he's able to bring it to completion. He's able to sculpt something that brings it to completion. The priests in the Old Testament did everything that they could to paint a picture or to sculpt something or to to bring something about that was never finished and never complete. Because Christ Jesus' priesthood is finished based upon his sacrifice on the cross, and it continues based upon his intercession, but it is an eternal intercession, and Christ is eternally interceding. Because of that, he is able to guarantee us that he will complete what he has started. He will bring it to completion. This is what this word means. It means to complete, to perfect, to utterly and thoroughly and entirely finish. To bring something to its full end. In other words, Jesus Christ's priesthood makes it possible for us to be completely saved. Not partially saved, but it makes it possible for us to be completely saved. It makes it possible for us to be saved to the uttermost. And maybe your version uses a different word, but I like that word. To be saved to the uttermost, to be saved to to completion, to be perfect in Christ. His priesthood makes it possible for us to be brought to completion. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 10 verse 11. For every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And verse 14 says, but by a single offering... He, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to complete what he has started. He's not an artist that's going to leave the picture unfinished. Your picture might look pretty drum right now. It might look pretty difficult, but Jesus Christ is a priest that intercedes on your behalf that is going to complete what he started. He's going to finish the work, and the picture at the end of the day is going to look exactly like he wanted it to look. It's going to look like three guys walking out of a fiery furnace that don't smell like smoke anymore. That's the picture that he's painting. But but that doesn't mean there's not difficulty and trials that come along with that. His priesthood makes it possible. His eternal priesthood makes it possible for him to save us to the uttermost. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am sure of this, that he who hath begun a good work in me will bring it to completion. Amen? Amen? At the day of Jesus Christ. His priesthood makes it possible for us to be complete. Let's not stop there. Let's go on. He says, um, he says, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. It's not just that he's able to complete or to save to the uttermost, but he's only able to save or he only saves to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. This idea is to approach to visit, to come near, to come into the presence of God. He only saves those who come into the presence of God, who pursue God's presence. We come into God's presence. We pursue God's presence. John 3 talks about 
John 3 talks about those who are not believers will not come into the light because their deeds will be exposed. But those who are believers will come into the light to see the glory of God in them. We must, God only saves those, get, get this, God only save those, saves those who are willing to come into his presence and face him with all of his scary glory. God only saves those who are willing to come into the presence of his scary glory. But they come by faith in Christ. You see, God's glory is scary for someone that enters into it unless they come in Christ. That's why he says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God, right? Those who are willing, those who are willing to approach this holy and, and transcendent being, those who are willing to approach him in all of his wrath towards sin, and they know they're sinners, but they're willing to approach him because they come in, because they come in, because they come in faith, because there's a mediator, because there's a high priest that stands and, and mediates for them. I'm afraid that many people today claim to be followers of Jesus Christ who have never entered into the presence of God. Jesus says, draw unto me, in Matthew 11, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We must come to God in Christ, not in our own righteousnesses, not in our own good deeds, not because of our religion, but we're to come to him by faith in what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. His immaculate conception, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his powerful resurrection, and his imputed righteousness. Listen, we must come into the presence of the most holy God, but we must come in the person of Jesus Christ. You can't run from God and expect to be saved. You must face him, but you must face him with Christ in you and you in Christ. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way. The truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Is that true? Let's go on. He says, all those who draw near to, let's see, let me, let me get my text here. Who, those who draw near to God through me. And then the end of the verse says, since he always lives to make intercession for them. How is this possible? It's possible because of the intercessory work of Christ Get this, it's possible because the intercessory work of Christ is forever. It never ends. This is like a defense attorney that's always standing on your behalf. If the Lord Jesus Christ decided one day to stop interceding on our behalf, we would all go to hell for eternity. You see, it's built on his character. It's built on his work. It's built on his faithfulness. It's built on his eternality. He is continuing daily to intercede for us. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter number 12 that daily the devil comes into the presence of God and makes accusations against God's people. So that's the, that's the prosecuting attorney, isn't it? And do you know what's interesting about that? The accusations that the devil makes about me are often true. 
right? Anybody go, go a day without sinning? Don't raise your hand if you do, because you're better than me. We don't, do we? The issue is we have a defense attorney. We have someone that stands on our behalf, and he is eternal. That means that every day for all of eternity, he will continue to stand on my behalf. Maybe not into eternity, but for all of this life, until I'm perfected in the image of Christ. His, he is able to save to the uttermost those who are willing to draw near to a holy God in him because he lives forever to intercede on their behalf. You will never stand before God without Christ and not be destroyed. But you can stand before God every day in his grace because of who he is and because of Christ. John 8, or Romans 8, 34, the Bible says, who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, present tense currently interceding on my behalf. Even at this moment, Jesus Christ is in heaven saying, I died for him. I died for him. I died for him. Every accusation that Satan throws at the father, that the father should destroy me, that I shouldn't be here. I should be laying here dead. Every accusation that the, that the devil accuses me of, Jesus Christ doesn't say, no, he didn't do that. Jesus Christ said, I died for him. I died for him. I died for him. See, that's where our hope comes from, folks. He's able to complete, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him because he lives forever interceding on our behalf. His priesthood is perpetual. The second thing that we see here in our text, verse 28, is his priesthood is perfect. For it was indeed, the Bible says, fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus Christ, the Bible says, is the fitting sacrifice. In other words, the word fitting here means that he is right for the task. He is suitable for what his purpose is. Jesus Christ is suitable for the task of saving to the uttermost those who draw near to him based upon his priesthood, based upon his building bridges, his intercessory work for us. Similar to an actor being perfect for a role, an athlete being perfect for a position, a musician being perfect for a part, Jesus Christ was perfect for the priesthood. You might have said this before in some situation in your life. Man, they would be perfect for that, right? Anybody say that before in any situation? They would be perfect for that. That's this. Jesus Christ was perfect for the priesthood in every way. And then it goes on to describe him as holy, meaning pure, sacred, hallowed, innocent, meaning having no guile or evil, unstained, meaning not connected to the world in a, in, a, in a bondage way, separated, meaning free from evil, apart from evil, and exalted, meaning highly exalted and lifted up. Everything about Jesus makes him perfect for the role of high priest. He was the priest that did not have to make sacrifices for himself. 
so therefore could make one sacrifice for sins for all of eternity. He was not only the priest that, could not, that did not have to make sacrifice for himself, but he was also the priest who was the lamb. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself. John 10 tells us that I, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus Christ laid himself on the altar, took the wrath of God on the behalf of mankind, and eternally satisfied God's wrath so that mankind could be saved. Hebrews 10, verse 11 through 14, the Bible says, And every priest stands daily at, this, at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until the enemy, his enemies shall be made the footstool of his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being saved. His priesthood is perfect. And then lastly, this morning, his priesthood is protected. The Bible says, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The priesthood is sealed by an oath. The oath, I believe, is the Holy Spirit of God. I believe that God sent his spirit to seal the promises that he made to us in the new covenant. And that based upon the character of God and based upon the seal of the Holy Spirit, everyone who has faith in Christ and has drawn near to him, to God, by faith in Christ, can be assured that they will be saved eternally. He has given us the Holy Spirit to seal us in that way. The seal of his promise to us is the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the Bible says, In him also, you also... When you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed on him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He is the seal. He is like a contract, a earnest payment or a down payment. He is what makes it sure that the end will take place. And Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed until the day of redemption. Jesus Christ is a, his priesthood is protected. It is protected by his own word and it is protected by his gifted Holy Spirit that lives within us and abides with us forever. In closing, the priesthood of Jesus Christ teaches us that a favorable relationship with God is possible well, get this, a favorable relationship with God is possible in spite of the fact that we are sinful. A favorable relationship with God is possible in spite of the fact that we are sinful. No matter how sinful we are, no matter how difficult life gets, or no matter how undeserving we feel ourselves to be, Jesus Christ is sufficient for bringing us Close to God. He is sufficient to bringing us close to God. Jesus Christ is the ultimate bridge builder. He is the ultimate priest. He can save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, and he will perpetually intercede on their behalf. If you are with us this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, 
You must desire a relationship with him. You must desire to come close to him. You must desire to be in the presence of God, including the exposing of your sin and the transformed life. You must desire to stand in the presence of God. Not just for his benefits, not a God of your own imagination or liking. We must desire a relationship with a glorious God of the Bible and all of his attributes. And you must approach him. You must approach him in all of your fear based upon your faith in Christ. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, verse 6, for without faith is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. If you're a believer this morning, if you're here and you know Christ as your Savior, my challenge to you is this. Be a bridge builder, not a bridge burner. The Bible calls us to be ambassadors of Christ, to work for him to bring people into harmony with God. All we do is we just point people to Jesus. We spend more of our time, I believe, in our generation, we spend more of our time pushing people away from Christ than we do bringing them to him. People should look at our Christianity and say, there's something unique about that. Let us as Christians, let us as believers, let us as those who have entered into the presence of God through Christ seek to bring others there in Christ as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we've had together this morning in, in understanding some details of it. We pray that you will help us to go home this morning with appreciation for who you are and for what you've done. And we give you the glory for it in Christ's name. Amen.